Our uh, text this morning for our sermon comes from Luke chapter 9. Uh, the Gospel according to Luke, beginning in uh, chapter 9, verse 43. And we will read all of the way until the end of the chapter, which is verse 62. So Luke chapter 9, verses 43 to 62. And we are beginning, as Ewan has said already, uh, services in preparation for Easter. And so we will be reflecting this Sunday and in the upcoming Sundays on Christ's journey to the cross and then obviously immediately before Easter reflecting directly on the crucifixion. And so this is an attempt for us as a church family to come together uh, to remind ourselves of the gospel, remind ourselves of the centrality of the cross, and then obviously at the end of this season to celebrate the resurrection. And so Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 43, the scripture tells us this. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all of the things he was doing, he told the disciples, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among them about who was the greatest amongst them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Do not stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans and made preparations for him. But the Samaritans did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. and They went to another village, and as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but... First, let me go and say goodbye to those at my home. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together and then we'll reflect on these texts as a church family. Father, we come to this point in the service in which we want to hear you speak. We recognize that your spirit has been at work in our midst already. And we recognize that we've reflected on your gospel as we've sung hymns and praise songs to you. 
But now, Lord, we quiet our hearts to have you speak to us. And we pray that in this time you would indeed move. I pray that you would help me to communicate your word in a clear, easy to understand way and in an accurate way. And Lord, I pray that today as we reflect on your word that that you would change our hearts to be better disciples and that we would leave here more in love and more committed to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, there has been a search for some time for what people call the great American novel. Now, what they mean by this phrase, great American novel, is a novel that is of high literary quality, but also a novel that captures in a very detailed way, American life and American culture. Now, some people say that America is too young as a country to even possess a great American novel. I'm actually somewhat sympathetic to that view. All of us who live in St. Andrews know that things were happening well before 1776, and that 1776 was not all that long ago. But still, the search goes on for the great American novel. And so some people have suggested Infinite Jest or Underworld, which are two more contemporary novels. Some people have suggested Absalon, O Absalon, which is by Faulkner, or even Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. And yes, you had to know I would work in the Southern authors, you see. But one novel that continually seems to come to the forefront of this entire conversation is F. Scott Fitzgerald's Great Gatsby. Now, I refer here obviously not to the 3D musical that was released just a few years ago, but the novel that was released in 1925 at the height of the jazz age. And it's a fascinating story. I'm not going to give all of the details because I do not want to spoil it for you. But suffice it to say that there is the main character, Gatsby, who lives on one side of a large body of water. And across from Gatsby is a very wealthy family. We find out as the novel goes along that Gatsby did not come from a wealthy family, a powerful family, and he is craving many things in life. Wealth, status, success, among those things. And he can stand on his dock at night and see the light from the dock on the other side of the lake, the dock that represents all that the wealthy family has and possesses and so much more. And that light haunts him because he's on this quest for so many things. And we find out as the novel progresses that instead of this being a hero's tale, it's actually a tale of tragedy. Because at the end of the book, the narrator talks about the rich family. And he says they were careless people. Despite the fact that they had wealth and status and access to the greatest educational institutions in the East Coast of the U.S., despite the fact that from all outward appearances, they were refined. They were actually in their hearts careless, selfish, and they would damage other people's lives and then retreat back behind their wall of money. And we also find that Gatsby himself, as he desired success and fame perhaps and so many other things, well, suffice it to say, his life did not end up the way he dreamt. 
And so it's a story of tragedy, and it's a critical reading of the American dream. It's a story of the American dream that does not end well, and there's something unsettling about the novel. Now, I bring The Great Gatsby up, not just because I think it's a great book, but because I also want to note how F. Scott Fitzgerald tells the story. At the beginning of the novel, the narrator is just enamored by what seems to be already Gatsby's success. He already is possessing a large house. Already he's throwing extravagant parties and all of the rich and all of the famous from all of the East Coast come to his home, flood into his back garden to celebrate with him as he puts on a display with fireworks and a live band and a large swimming pool. And so the narrator at the beginning of the story is caught up in what seems to be Gatsby's triumphant rise. But behind the scenes, he slips in just a few comments to let us know that there's a dark side to the story. Gatsby is at a party, and fireworks are going off, and the band is playing, and suddenly he has to leave to go to a dark corner of his home in a secluded office to make mysterious phone calls to people in cities like Chicago. And amidst all of the glamour and all of the success, Fitzgerald, the writer, just slips that point into the narrative. And there's a contrast being drawn between Gatsby's public image, wealth, someone who's being upwardly mobile, and something happening behind the scenes that's shady. He's on the phone with shady characters involved in mysterious business deals. There's more to the story, there's more to Gatsby than we first imagined. And that contrast between the public image and just the note of who Gatsby really is strikes you as the reader. And you have to just keep going to find out more. Who is this person and what's going to happen to him? Now Fitzgerald could have said, Gatsby was a man who wanted money. But he was involved in mysterious dealings, and that wasn't good, and then carry on with the story. But no, he knows the power of narrative and the power of contrast. He knows how to juxtapose two different ideas so that the reader can see powerful contrast. Now, whenever I was a high school student in the States, we had to read The Great Gatsby, and I must confess, I had no idea what it was about. Right? I've had to go back later in my life and read it again, and now I appreciate it. Now, you might be here today, and you might be in the same boat as me. You might think, David, I actually read that as a 15-year-old. I don't remember anything of what you're saying. Or you might have never read it. But my point is simply this. Great stories deal with subtlety. Great stories deal even with contrast. And Luke is a great researcher, and he's a great author, and here he's compiled for us the stories of Jesus' life that he deems relevant. And he's put them in such a way that there is a powerful contrast going on. Just like F. Scott Fitzgerald does in the beginning of The Great Gatsby. And so in Jesus' day, there was this idea that the Messiah would come. And he would come in power and in glory. And he would remove Rome from the Holy Land. And establish the Holy Land as a place for God's people, the Jews. They could live in security and freedom and prosperity. And he would set himself up perhaps even 
in this honorable position as Messiah, hero, the one who brought liberation. And so Jesus' disciples are expecting a Messiah along these lines. And in Luke chapter 9, it looks like for a time they're going to get exactly what they want. Because over and over and over again in Luke chapter 9, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. It's breaking in. It's coming in now in both Jesus' words and his deeds. And so you have in Luke chapter 9 the transfiguration in which Jesus shows his glory and his authority. You have in Luke chapter 9, Jesus doing something amazing. He takes what seems to be nothing and feeds thousands and thousands of people. You have in Luke chapter 9, Jesus having such authority that he can even cast out demons. He's unrivaled. His authority is unparalleled even over the spiritual world. And so here you have a person who is speaking about the kingdom of God and he's able to back up all of his claims. His glory, his power, his authority are on display for everyone. And the disciples are surely saying at this moment, yes, this is the person we've been waiting for. How fortunate are we to have front row seats. But Luke doesn't let that be the entire narrative. He slips in other parts of the story to draw contrast. And so Jesus, after the transfiguration occurs, looks to his disciples and says, Now tell no one about this. And that's intriguing, isn't it? For a man who's destined to be a conquering hero, a great liberator beloved by all, for him to look and say, now this is our secret. And you have Jesus who, after he feeds people and after he performs miracles such as exorcisms, looks to his disciples and says, now I will go to Jerusalem and I will be handed and so here is a man who's going to Jerusalem not to receive a crown of glory, but a crown of thorns. And he's going to Jerusalem not to be set up as a liberator, but to be condemned as a criminal. And to be executed on a cross, as if he were guilty. And to be hung on a cross and nailed to a cross, publicly shamed and humiliated, left naked, bleeding, dying. And so there's this contrast being drawn in the text. He is the Messiah. He does have power. He is coming in glory. The kingdom of God is breaking in. It's wonderful. All of God's promises are ringing true. But he's not the sort of Messiah that everyone expects. He's the Messiah who's going to come lowly as a servant who will suffer for God's people. He's the Messiah who has great authority and power, but he uses that authority and power in a different way by allowing himself to be handed over. And so back and forth and back and forth the story goes. And especially in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it says early in the story, Jesus is already setting himself towards Jerusalem. Think about this. This is really the beginning of Luke's gospel, isn't it? The story is just getting started. Just a few chapters ago, we were learning about Jesus' virgin birth and learning about his genealogy. 
We've learned that he's able to do miracles. He's made some statements that are amazing and profound. And then all of a sudden, he is already setting his face to Jerusalem, the place of suffering. And so Luke is setting this contrast out. The expectations of the day in contrast with who Jesus really is. So that the disciples, we can learn how the disciples learned how, who Jesus is, but also so that we, as modern disciples, can learn who Jesus is. And what it really means to follow him. The idea is simple. Jesus was countercultural for his day. And the message of Christianity remains stunningly countercultural. What is in the air around us today doesn't fit with the message that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago. And sometimes what comes easy and intuitive to us as sinful people isn't exactly what Jesus wants us to think is normal. And so he was a countercultural Messiah in his day, and his followers must continue to be countercultural. And so throughout this entire narrative, Luke is stripping back what we think is true to show us who Jesus is and to show us who the truth really is. And he's comparing our expectations with what Jesus really expects for us. And so let's look at this just for a few moments. The story begins rather interestingly with everyone being amazed in verse 43 with Jesus' power. He's just cast a demon out of a young person. And so everyone is marveling at the authority that he possesses, that without lifting a finger, so to speak, the demon must leave at the authority of Christ. And while everyone is in awe of Christ, we find that the disciples are starting to imagine how they might cash in on this. Because they're thinking, if he has this sort of power, and if we're following him, then surely as he sets up his kingdom, we also will be great. And so which one of us is going to be the greatest? As he liberates us from the Romans and as people honor him, we'll get some of the credit too. Because we were here from the very beginning. And so amongst us, who's going to sit at the seat of honor? Who's going to have the gold star beside the name? Who's going to have the VIP ticket and sit in the front row? Who's going to have their name called out loud publicly at the award ceremony so they can come on the stage and receive an honor for best follower of the Messiah? Hopefully, by the way, the envelope is correct, right? So, and so this is in their mind. And Jesus says, actually, you've missed the point. Because while you've been thinking about these things, I just told you that I am about to be delivered over. You see, that's important for the narrative. People are marveling over Jesus' power. The disciples are, so to speak, drooling over the power that they might receive. And Jesus is standing there in the midst of this, according to Luke, saying, I will be handed over so that I might suffer. And the contrast is between their desire for honor and his willingness to suffer. And so to prove the point, he pulls out a child from the crowd. And in this day, children were often either really not noticed 
or even considered lowly in terms of social status. And so Jesus pulls a child out to prove the point that he's concerned with someone that they might themselves not be concerned with. And he says, here is the greatest person. Here's the person with whom you should be concerned. Look at this young child. And the point is this. The people whom God considers to be important in the kingdom are not often the people we consider to be important in the kingdom. And what we think think makes someone important in the kingdom is not always what God thinks makes someone important. Here's an illustration to kind of demonstrate what might be happening. Whenever I was in high school, I belonged to a, a college that took several mission trips to Central and South America. And so as an 18-year-old and 19-year-old, we were placed in the jungles of Nicaragua and Honduras and El Salvador. I'll never forget, by the way, it was my first, one of my first trips outside of the U.S. We came into this compound in Nicaragua, and the missionary translator told us, okay, the people who live here are the Sandinistas, the people who took up arms against U.S. government policy here in Central America. And I knew about 1980s foreign policy, and I thought, okay, well, we picked an interesting place to spend the night. God, please protect us. And there were all sorts of anti-American flags there, and we were in the heart of it. And so as an 18-year-old, I was scared to death. And then we met a pastor in the area. And he was so poor that his clothes were hand-me-downs. I remember one day he wore a shirt that had a team that the shirt claimed won the Super Bowl. But that team had never won the Super Bowl. And what it was was the NFL had made shirts for both teams in case either team won. And they just sent the bad ones to South America and Central America. And that's what he had to wear. And I remember one day he showed up to meet us at the church and he had a Papa John's delivery shirt on, which is like a Domino's pizza. And as we went around in this village with him, he one day lifted up this Papa John's shirt and showed us a hole in his stomach that had healed up. The scar was still there from when he was shot in the war with the Contras and the Sandinistas in the 80s. And he would go around, and we would notice him walking with a limp. He would go around with great suffering, trying to visit house to house to invite people to church so that they might hear the good news of the kingdom. And one day as we were traveling with him, we said, "What? how can we pray for you? What do we need? And he said, I just wish more than anything that I had commentaries and theology books so that I knew what to say as I preached. And I thought of my life, which was spent in an air-conditioned house in northwest Florida. And I thought of my bedroom, which at the time as a college student, which was filled with commentaries and books. And I thought of the casual way I treated studies and how I would maybe read a book and then go see a movie or many times not read a book and still go see a movie. And how I treated things so frivolously. And here was this man who desired to serve Christ in the midst of great suffering. He went to his home and his children had health problems because they were not able to have access to antibiotics. And 
Despite his limp, despite the state of his home, despite the lack of resources, he stood every day to be faithful in his village. Now, I tell that story not to romanticize poverty or things like that. I tell that story because here was a man in the eyes of the world who has no significance. In the eyes of the world, he has no economic or political power. In the eyes of the world, he is a nobody. But as far as I was concerned, as a young man standing there in the humid, hot jungle of Nicaragua, he was greater, far greater in the kingdom of heaven than I was. And there he was, faithfully fulfilling his role. And there I was, watching television, surrounded by commentators, you see. And so in the eyes of the kingdom, according to the divine economy, he was of great value. Now, I'm not saying that this is something that we merit, our works merit greatness in the kingdom. I'm saying, again, the point is this reversal. Who we think is great is not always great. And what we think constitutes greatness is not always greatness. And so greatness in the kingdom, according to Jesus, is a willingness to suffer and not to push for one's own way, and not to see who can be in front of everyone, and not to see who's going to be honored. It's a willingness to be content and to serve Christ even in the smallest, most menial details. It's a willingness to take on children's services in the back, even though it can be stressful, and even though coffee and biscuits and Kool-Aid and drinks are flying everywhere, and kids are sometimes restless, and no one else in church understands the sacrifice of trying to keep kids quiet for a long time while a long-winded preacher talks. But it's the willingness to take on the small things, so to speak, to sometimes neglect it. Because in those small things, there can be greatness. It's a willingness to be humble and to serve without a desire for recognition. So... The contrast couldn't be greater. The Messiah going to suffer, to be handed over. The disciples seeking power, seeking who can come first. And now, we don't have time to probe everything, but let's go quickly just for some of the other parts of the story. What happens next is they come across a person who is casting out demons. Now, it's interesting, because right before verse 43, we learn that the disciples were unable to cast out a demon. Now here's a person who's not part of the inner circle of Jesus. He's not one of the twelve casting out demons. And what they say is, Lord, he's not like us. He's not part of our club, our clique. And so we told him to stop. Now can you imagine? All of this great spiritual activity is happening People are being healed. Demons are being cast out. And you walk up to the person who's doing this and say, mm, could you please stop? Say, no demon casting out zone. And can you imagine the nerve? But there's still a focus on the self. This is our boundaries that we've set up. This is our way of doing things. And he doesn't fit with our expectations. And Jesus said, well, he was doing it. In my name. And so he's for us. And so the kingdom is broader than just our expectations. We might try to put limits on what God might do. And sometimes the limits that we construct are limits that help us focus on ourselves. 
so that God can bless us and no more. Or that the center of God's activity in the world, we like to think, is just around our own life or around our own church or even our own denomination. But the kingdom is broader and so Jesus said there's a reversal that happens when we understand things from the kingdom perspective. Christ is moving forward and he is for us, Jesus says. It's broader. And so they're closed and Christ is open. And then another contrast, very quickly, the story of the Samaritans. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be killed. And there's great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans at this time. And so as they pass through Samaria, all of the Samaritans reject Christ. And the question arises, as the disciples... What should they do about the rejection? And so, some of the key disciples determine, you know, in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a story of a great prophet named Elijah. And Elijah demonstrated that he was a great prophet because he said to his opponents, if I am a man of God, May fire come down and consume you. And suddenly, as soon as he spoke those words, divine judgment fell and consumed his enemies. So it confirmed that he was a man of God. And in the air at this time, there was the thought that the Messiah would be like an Elijah or even Elijah himself. And that's why when Jesus said, who do you say I am and who do men say that I am? Peter said, well, some say Elijah. And so they're thinking, okay, if Jesus is a great prophet like Elijah, these people just rejected him. So that means he will demonstrate his validity and his power by calling down fire to destroy them. After all, the Samaritans are all false teachers in the eyes of the Jews. And they're outside of God's people in the eyes of the Jews of the first century. But Jesus does something radical. He says, in light of the coming of the kingdom of God, we actually show mercy. And in Luke chapter 8, we find out that the Samaritans receive not the fire of judgment, but the fire of the Holy Spirit. As they too are accepted by Christ, as they too receive the Spirit and are brought into the church. And so Jesus' ministry is not one of condemnation. That's what everyone expects. It's one of reconciliation. And so the kingdom, again, is different from what the disciples perceive. And then we go on. There are other things, very quickly again. As he's setting forth to Jerusalem, people come. And they say, Lord, we want to follow you. And Jesus begins to pull from the Elijah tradition and he says, interestingly, well, as I go on my journey, there's no place for me to lay my head. So count the cost because it's a costly thing, this road that I'm on. And someone says, well, Lord, let the dead, uh, let me bury my family first. I, I'm willing to follow you, but I want to fulfill my family obligations. And Jesus, interestingly, draws a contrast between what was perceived at that day to be religious duty and what he is now calling for himself. Here's what I mean. We know in the Ten Commandments 
there was the command to honor father and mother. And so in the Jews, Jesus' day, what that meant was a significant focus on the need to respect parents by burying them correctly. And Jewish burial, especially for parents, could last a year. And so this was a deep honor that one was to give to one's parents to bury them the right way. It was a religious duty. It was something that they felt they were obligated before God to do. And Jesus here is subverting this. He's taking what was considered to be one of the most basic, fundamental religious duties to honor the parents. And he's saying as important as that is, I'm even more important. And attachment to me is even greater. So that in the eyes of the kingdom, everyone's relationships are reoriented. All of my relationships in my life are reoriented, at least they're supposed to be, in light of Christ. And yours are as well. And so we judge things not according to how they may be around us, but according to how Christ says they should be. And so there are family obligations, but those are secondary even to the obligation that Jesus places on us to be his disciples. And I said it fulfills the Elijah story because think about this. In the text that was read this morning, Elijah, the great prophet, comes to Elisha. He says, you will follow me. And Elisha says, well, Lord... I can follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Elijah lets him. And Elisha, student, goes back to say farewell to family. But in these verses, someone says to Jesus, verse 61, Lord, I'll follow you. Let me say goodbye to my family first. And Jesus says, well, I'm a prophet greater than even Elijah. You must now follow me. There's not even a, a chance to say goodbye. And while Elisha was plowing when he was discovered by Elijah in the narrative that was read this morning, Jesus says he expects us to put our hands to the plow and to keep going. These are hard words. But the idea, again, is that the kingdom changes things. And that all of the allegiances we have in life to country, to family, to whatever, we assess those allegiances in light of our ultimate allegiance to him. Now, we've walked through rather quickly. We've given a lot of detail. Let's just focus very briefly now on, on application. Let's, let's end the service with application. What this means is that you and I are countercultural people. At least we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be the people who stand up and say to a world that's obsessed with image and power and privilege, no, that's not what is most important. What's most important is a willingness to serve and to be humble. We're the people who stand up and say to a world that's obsessed with different allegiances to political parties or to different familial relations to say, actually, those things can be good, but what's most important is Christ and the kingdom that he's bringing in. And we're the people who stand up and say, actually, God can't be confined to just us and how we want things to be. But God is on a mission, a broad mission of reconciling the world to himself through his son. And it's not about us. It's about him and his mission. And we're just fortunate to play a part and we just sit back 
and contribute as we can and enjoy the ride as we see the kingdom of God being manifest as kingdom come it's a hard thing to be a Christian to swim against the grain it's a hard thing to follow a Lord who says love me above all others even above family but it's also an exciting thing and a wonderful thing because we do so not out of obligation but out of joy Gratitude that he's come and suffered on our behalf and rose again. And we do so out of excitement that he's coming again. And we do so with a front row seat. To see the great things that the world often neglects. To see the exciting works of God that others may not always notice because they have their preconceived notions. And to see him usher in his kingdom. Now we're going to have brief prayer and then we're going to close with a worship song. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for salvation in Christ and what you've done and what you will do for us. And we pray that as we leave, we would leave counterculturally, that we would be willing to see things not how the world presents them or how we would like to see them, but see them in light of who you are and what you've done. And to be willing to make the contrast between what you say is true and what seems to be true around us. And to be willing to follow you above all other things. To understand that your kingdom requires humility and self-sacrifice and placing you above all others. And we pray this in your name. Amen.